My name is Gianni Russo, a.k.a. Carlo, the infamous son-in-law from The Godfather. I'm now known as the Hollywood Godfather, and this is my story. Before all of the wins in my portfolio, I was a little boy diagnosed with polio. Welcome, everybody. Another Hollywood Godfather podcast with my compadre, writing upon and good friend, Patrick Piccarelli. Good evening, everybody. I hope everybody's doing well. Well, oh, they're well. not doing us. <laughs> that's, that's the opportunity for Well. Well. Anyway, uh, before the show started, Johnny and I were talking about uh, the late, great Barbara Walters. Uh, and we, we, we both had... Uh, uh, we came across her during the course of our professional lives. Uh, you want to start off, Johnny, or should I start off with my story? Well, I, re- I really didn't meet her in a, a, as a professional. <laughs> or maybe you could say that. You know, I, I knew her father, Lou Walters, because of Costello. And he opened, he had one of the best nightclubs here in competition with the Copa, the Latin Quarter. And uh, years later, when I turned 18, years later, when I turned 18, that was one of the hat check rooms I controlled because yeah. of Costello in New York. I had three of them. So it, uh, no, but I knew the father and I met her early on, you know, at that time, that, that family, uh, being in the nightclub and her being so social and she was in every place I happened to be in and Copacabana was a lot of them. Latin quarter was a lot of them. She always treated me fairly. She knew who I knew though. That's why I think, cause she, yeah, you she know, had uh, a presence about a, I don't know what you know about her, but she was pretty uppity. Well, I, I had a good experience with her, and we'll, we'll get uh, into that in a minute. But just in case people aren't aware, hat check rooms in clubs, restaurants, uh, wherever, they're private businesses. People buy them and own them. Oh, yeah. And, and pay uh, a lot for them. Yeah, you, you have to go into the business. You have to pay for that room. And you get the uh, ex- exclusive on uh, checking codes, which can be lucrative. Well, not only checking the coats at that time, what a lot of people didn't know, even my kids, when I told them I had them, they said, what are you doing with that? <laughs> That's when everybody smoked indoors. Yeah. So once the coats were hung up, the girls would go out with their little cigarette trays and cigar trays and made a fortune. I didn't realize. I, they made a, these women made a lot of money. Uh, oh, yeah. How much would an average coat room cost someone to open? Oh, I don't even know that because I never asked, but it would cost. Well, you couldn't open it. The owner had you had to get it from him if he wanted to do you a favor or he was doing somebody else a favor, mostly mob families. I didn't get it that way because Stella wanted me to have them and they gave them to me. But I didn't realize it either. In fact, I remember the night I got it. It was on my 18th birthday at the Copacabana. And because I didn't really have to be 18 to have it. Because you got to how to get a license and do all these things. Yeah, it, you know, it's it's a licensed premise. You you were allowed yeah. to drink at eighteen back in the day. You know, right. So with that said, I could do anything I want to do. When, you know, just running messages like a busboy. But once you had a business and hired people, and I had four girls for each one, so you can imagine I had twelve women that I had to hire. Yeah. Which I really like that because I always liked older women then. <laughs> well, everybody was an older woman for you back then. <laughs> you well, yeah, kid. that's true. That's true. Yeah. But uh, so with, with that said, I give, it's just a, a fun thing. But 
my girls were making 100, 150 a night in tips. And that's in the 60s. Hello. Yeah. No, that, that's, no, that, that was in the 50s. Even better. Decent money. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, yeah, late fifties, yeah, early sixties. Yeah, know what it takes. And I figure they walk in. You have a job open as a hat checker. Only you got You have to buy the thing. Anyway, Barbara Walters. Uh, after I moved here, I've been here in southwestern Pennsylvania for thirty years. But I guess I was here about six or seven years, uh, and I hadn't done much TV uh, then. When I was uh, back in New York, I did a lot because I was in New York, and I was always being interviewed about something. I was on all kinds of shows. I was. Ricky Lake's uh, personal polygraph person. We discussed that a few shows ago. And I, uh, somebody asked me, and I would go on the show. And it, uh, I was a PI, and it helped business. But uh, so I'm, I'm, I moved to Pennsylvania, and I got a call from ABC uh, 2020, the show. Wow, uh, that's a big show. Big show. Yeah, uh, Barbara Walters was the MC, and Diane Sawyer did the interviews. John Miller jumped on board later. John Miller was a reporter for NBC. He went out to work for the NYPD, the LAPD, the Boston PD, and the FBI. Yeah. He's quite the guy. He's an expert on terrorism, but he was starting out too. He was a young man. Anyway. Uh, the, so he was a Marilyn Monroe, one of Marilyn Monroe's husbands, that John Miller. Oh, no. no, 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 no. Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller, that was, Arthur. yeah. One wrote plays, the other one didn't. Anyway, uh, the show's topic was deception. And I was considered a, an expert on the topic. I, uh, I was an expert with a uh, lie detector, coming on as a polygraph. And uh, I, I was fairly well known. So I got a call here. So I, I drove to New York and uh, it, it, it was recorded. Diane, so I had the whole hour, you know, and uh, Diane Sawyer interviewed me. And it was uh, clips about various crimes. And I spoke to Barbara Walter, very, very nice lady. But anyway, it was it was recorded and it was it wasn't going to be on for another couple of weeks. So I go home and we had a like a party at my house, you know, because the boys then my oh, son. That's big. Are you kidding? Me? Big thing. I mean, uh, the only uh, people around here that get involved in television was is when somebody turns one on, you know. But other than that, <laughs> uh, so anyway, I had I had a couple of the uh, neighbors over and the in laws, and my boys were about six or eight six and eight years old the two years apart well maybe seven and nine and, you know and and then you know their fathers are the biggest thing in the world they get to be teenagers we're, we're idiots and then when we become they become in their early 20s and all of a sudden we regain our intelligence but uh, <laughs> that's for another show but anyway uh i had a very good relationship with, with my kids and you still do though oh yeah yeah, yeah. Me, I'm, just the other day you were out yeah. sharing their birthdays we go out all the they're they're grown, they're adults. So anyway, I know they're very nice young men. Anyway, so Barbara Walters comes on the year. She introduces the show. Now I love the way she used to say, This is Barbara Walters, and this is 2020. I mean, <laughs> she just yeah, you know, she actually put a T in the word. No New Yorker does that. It's 2020, right. you know. But anyway, and she said, uh, this evening we have a uh, a recognized expert in the field of deception. His name is Patrick Piccarelli. And my kids jumped up and one of them, I forget which one, it said, Barbara Walters just said daddy's name on television. <laughs> I thought it was so cute. Oh, but, yeah. Hello. You should be uh, proud of it, too. Anyway, I, I, I this is the first I heard about it. So it's, yeah, well, it's impressing me. <laughs> she, so, she never interviewed me. <laughs> and I don't know. Anyway, she was she was very nice. She was she was gracious. And you, you could tell 
I mean, there wasn't many people. There was the, the camera people and it was her. Uh, John Miller wasn't her uh, a co-anchor at the time. She was by herself. You can tell the power she wielded. I mean, she she was a powerhouse. She, you know, it, it got beyond she was the first woman anchor. She was the first woman this. She was the first woman that. A after this, she'd been in the business for, even back then, she'd been in the business for like 20 or 30 years. I mean, she was very powerful. And uh, But even and, during that time, you know, her father was a powerful guy in New York. Yeah. They named 52nd Street after him. I don't know if you know that. Lou Walters way. Yep. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think I'm my, I always related her strength to being a father, not as a, well, I mean, never watched, you know, today, you know, everything is on television. I, I never watched television, period. Yeah. Without every night for years and years and years. But, you know, I mean, she got, uh, you know, it, 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 back then it was a man's world. In fact, uh, she, at the time when she got on the, uh, the uh, Today Show, they wouldn't let her interview men. They just let her interview women. And you're talking about the, you know, that was in the 1960s. And they were still treating women like they were in the Stone Age. Well, you know what? I, what impressed me was her obituary this weekend. I yeah. didn't realize all the people she hit because, again, I never watched it. She, I mean, she, every, and you name it, and world, world figures. She and every, everybody the ball. from criminals to popes and everybody in between. Right. Yeah, she was quite a woman. Anyway, she was out of the limelight for the last uh, eight years or so. Uh, she had health, serious health problems. But anyway, she's going to be missed. I, I like her. Oh, yeah. The only, the only thing I, 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 I didn't realize it was eight years she was out because that view, she produces that. She owns that show. I'm wondering, I'm hoping it goes away. In fact, <laughs> yeah. there, there was a couple of uh, obituaries that even mentioned it. And I, I, she, she's not a fan of mine anyway, and I'm not of her, um, Whoopi Goldberg. But they said now that she's gone, I hope Whoopi is too. <laughs> no, that's just not going anywhere. It's very popular. She's... Uh, yeah, it's, it's not going anywhere. I, I when it first came on, I, I started watching it, and then it, it became extremely political, and I I just went away from it. Oh yeah, well it's been that way for now a long time. Yeah. But anyway, uh, rest in peace, Barbara. And uh, shall we get to the main topic of the show, which is something you're going to have to introduce? And that's going to be what? What what show are we doing? <laughs> Got me. What do you want to talk about? No, the. Uh, that family that that, that you knew that uh, had a uh, an end with Jack Ruby, the Caprici family. That's them. Yeah, yeah that, they, they go way folks. back. <laughs> yeah, folks, you you can tell we don't do a lot of uh, rehearsing and uh, you know going over the script. <laughs> <laughs> the five minutes before the show. Hey, what do you want to talk about? I don't know. What do you want to talk about? But well, anyway, the only, you know the reason this this family impressed me so much is that. The grandfather was such a dedicated guy, and he came to this country like a lot of, well, there, there were three ports that were very, you know, uh, inviting to immigrants coming here, especially from Sicilian background. It was San Diego because of the fishing, mm. New Orleans because of the waterfront also, and New mm. York City. And that's why we have, if you're coming to America, you know, then we also, you know, Canada. But, uh, and this gentleman, I, I knew his grandfather 
through Carlos Basales. Yeah. When they all first arrived in, you know, like in the 1919s and 20s, like that time. Say that name again. Capricci's. Capricci's, all right. They were in what kind of business? Well, they were any kind of business at the time. When the father got to New Orleans and, you know, got to meet Carlos and most people that came from Sicily did that for, for a reason. His relatives were living in Dallas, this Italian family. Yeah. And they let him know there was a grocery store for sale for like $700. And they thought, you know, that he should get out of New Orleans. Because everybody, as as we, you and I mentioned earlier on another earlier show, in, in 1891, after being acquitted for a police officer's murder, yeah. they were acquitted. They hung 11 policemen by their neck because they were Italian. Acquitted. No, they hung 11 Italians. 11 Italians. Yeah, not policemen. I mean, I'm sorry, the killer, the policeman that was acquitted. Yeah, yeah, they they hung uh, these people even though they were acquitted. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't a very. If you were Italian, it wasn't a very safe town. No, and so and Marcellus, that was his goal, and I mean, he 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 clarified that and rectified that right away. (laughs) Well, do you think that there was some? uh, that was the reason that this family left and went to Dallas. It wasn't safe. Well, I was told that later on because yeah. I said, I said to like, it's like eight generations later we're talking about now yeah. that this family is still that successful. Yeah. And I forgot which generation I was talking to. And I said, what mages come here? And they said, the lynching. And I knew about the lynching. I said, you mean the lynching in New Orleans? They said, yeah, it was, that, that message was carried throughout the world and you got there and get, get out of there as soon as you can. And that's why one of their relatives told them to come to, to Dallas. They found this grocery store for them. Well, that lynching was one of the reasons that uh, the, uh, the Italians that remained and feared for themselves decided they want to protect themselves. And that was the, uh, contrary to popular belief where they say that uh, New York was the birthplace of Italian organized crime. It was New Orleans. Yep. Yep. And they, uh, they 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 got together, and that was basically the the uh, seedling of uh, what would become the American mafia. Yep. Well, see what, and they, as you're saying now, people didn't realize that because later on, New York got got the notoriety because the immigrants that were coming here, they were abusing immigrants that were here already, especially coming out of Sicily. They were shaking them down, and yeah, the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that, 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 that was the black hand. Uh, yeah, but you know, people ask me. I mean, I taught an organized crime class in, in the university I was teaching in at the time. Well, why were the Italians picking on the Italians? Why did they pick on somebody else? Because they only spoke Italian. They only spoke Italian, and they were they wanted to show their power. They came to America, and they were hoodlums when they got here. And th- that's why I had so much respect when I found the true story of Carlo Gambino. Carlo Gambino, at the age of 17, was a made guy out of Sicily and was told to come here and create the five families and stop these guys from shaking down 
dying immigrants. So you know, it was for a good reason at the beginning. <laughs> there's also a, a portion in our first book. I can say that now because we have two books. Yes. But anyway, a portion of our first book when uh, uh, Frank Costello showed you that uh, that well-worn uh, newspaper article he carried around with him wherever he went. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, uh, people think that, uh, you know, it's because he was a gangster that uh, uh, he didn't know the history of where he came from and why he wanted to change the perception of Italians in America. And, you know, if you listen to, to Costello and other people, the basic opportunity they had was nothing. This was 70, 80 years ago when you were born or you and when you arrived in Little Italy, you stayed in Little Italy, yep. you know, and, and, you know, to fight your way out. There wasn't any legitimate opportunities. Uh, there weren't many legitimate opportunities unless you wanted to stay poor. And uh, tell tell the listeners what this article was he carried around with him. Well, the first time I met him face to face at the Waldorf, I was like, you know, 12 and a half, 13 years of age. And he started telling me a little history. And I guess basically he was trying to lay the ground out work out to let me know that, you know, he's he's who he is, but there was a reason for him to be coming that he had an ad in his pocket and he showed me the ad and he told me what it said. Cause I was a kid and, and, you know, pretty much an illiterate at that time because of my years in Bellevue, I didn't get schooling. And he read the ad and it was, they were building the reservoir in central park. It was like eight, I think 1800s or early. It was in the 1800s. I don't know exactly when. Yeah. yeah. And the ad that he carried around with him was the want ad for the laborers to go to work there. And they listed every everybody. The top of the list were Irish, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. And as they went down the list, even dark skin, brown, whatever, after everybody being politically correct, yeah. they had the WAPs. Yeah. And we got the the, the least amount of salary, worked more hours, and these guys were just so proud to get out of the neighborhood, go, go to Central Park and dig this dam. And they took advantage of them. And that's when he said they had to create something. And they got together, and the Carlo Gambinos of the world and all that started stopped the Monoranos from shaking down their own people. And they started organizing and demanding jobs. And only to find out I found out that, you know, Frank Costello's real name was Franco Castigliani. Yeah. And he saw the opportunity <laughs> that the Irish had, so he took on the name Costello. Everybody, that's a total Irish name. Yeah, well, he was pretty smart figuring, well, it ends in a vowel. What a, the average person's not going to know or care. Right. Yeah, but uh, yeah, Costello was an Irish name. Yeah. Uh, so, and I mean, you can tell. It really affected him. I mean, sure, he wanted to make money and all that, but initially he got in to help himself and to help uh, his uh, his Italian compatriots. Oh, and yeah. that's how it started. And, uh, you know, we all know where, where it went, what it became. Right. It got out of hand after a while, but uh, that was the reason they started it. Yeah, yeah. So we so we have the uh, this family uh, in Dallas now, owning what kind of business? Well, they they they... Opened a grocery store, and then there was, and I, I know the history of these people. I, I really was impressed with them. Then, they, then they there was a restaurant for sale, 
and they talked him to buying it. And he bought the restaurant, but they couldn't change the name of it because they didn't have enough money to change the sign. So it had a lounge name at the end, and they made it a restaurant name. Yeah. And the restaurant was still there. Then they started expanding, and they invented, not invented, they brought to Dallas and introduced pizza pies. And they became famous for pizza. They own a chain of them now. It's eight generations later. And now they're using the family name. They're not using the old restaurant name. I forgot the name of it was some crazy name. Uh, Olympic or some crazy something. So, that, that nothing to do with restaurants. I was to say, uh, and I'm about to say, so somewhere along the line, they got introduced to and involved with uh, people that the average citizen wouldn't be involved with. Well, the reason that happened, Witten, is how I met. It's funny that you should say that. But that's how I got to meet them because I was doing trips down to Dallas a long time before most people would even think. And when you we, we talk even about JFK and that election, and I was going to Dallas maybe two years even before that because Costello and the syndicate, Chicago, because anything anything west of Chicago, they controlled with people. And Frank Costello and Tony Ocado started opening slot machines and gambling halls all through the United States. And a guy called Jack Ruby ran those that whole thing for them down there. Hey, Jack Rubenstein. Huh? Jack Rubenstein. Yeah. So Jack Ruby. Yeah, he, he dropped the steam part. It was his guy. Yeah. And, uh, well, I think, I, I don't know if they did it. I think it was just because of a nickname called Jack Ruby. He wore a Ruby pinky ring also. Okay. Rubenstein. So what I'm saying is that he was running all the gambling holes and strip joints and became a big customer of these guys and became a part of American history as we know him because as you're as you're doing your investigative work, you found out that him and his wife were the only people to visit Jack Ruby in prison yeah, yeah, to, after to, the shooting of Lee Alvey Oswald. Well, to to clarify, you know, to work that up even further, I I, I was greatly enmeshed in the history of this assassination. I taught it as a class in another college when I was in New York at all semester of just the assassination. I've read that numerous books. I'm probably only one of the few people who actually read the Warren Commission report because it was 27 volumes. There's a lot of reading. But anyway, by the way, I sold the, the, the Warren report a couple of years ago. I bought it. 27 volumes was 50 bucks. Wow. And I sold it for 2700 I should have held on to it. But anyway, uh, when Jack Ruby killed uh, Oswald, naturally he was a high-value prisoner, not only because of who he shot, but they didn't want to repeat of him getting killed. Now, I mean, you know, people, you, some of you listeners, most of you, I assume, weren't around back then. The president gets killed on a Friday. Ruby gets, uh, shoots Oswald on a Tuesday. I mean, the, the, the country was in an uproar, and he was murdered on live television. Well, uh, the other thing that most people don't realize, too, we get, we get to the origin 
of the Capiches coming from New Orleans to get to Dallas. And my friend at that time, he hired Lee Harvey Oswald, because you and I were, we were doing the research on the story, and I told you I met Lee Harvey Oswald on Tuesday in New Orleans with Carlos Masales. And you said, that's impossible. He was in Dallas. I said, well, I'm just telling you, the, the guy was there Tuesday. And then we figured out he drove up because nobody knew where he was. He was he was mustered out as a Marine in Dallas. He was on a radio show that only talked about being Hitler lovers and all of this. And for some reason, Carlos Masalas was up all night. And he listened, listened to all this stuff. He sent, he sent for this guy. And he convinced, I don't think how many people know the story. He convinced Lee Harvey Oswald, if he shot JFK, he would be with open arms greeted to go to Germany or Russia, whatever it was. Well, you know, but no, uh, but no, he wasn't. No, I'm, Fidel Castro, I'm going ahead of myself. That yeah. Castro would open, would open arms and he, he wanted to go. He wanted to get yeah, out of the uh, country to begin with. Lee Oswald uh, used to pass out pamphlets on the streets of, uh, of New Orleans. He had an organization called the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. And uh, he was already back from the Soviet Union. He, he spent some time there, met his wife, they decided to come back to the United States, which rarely happens. And who knows? Why or how, but we're not going to get into that. We'll talk for four hours on just on that topic alone. Oh, yeah, yeah. But he was a fixture in New Orleans, passing out these pamphlets, getting arrested all the time. He did a lot of radio interviews too. Oh, I know. Uh, and that's what that's what attracted Marsalis to him. Yeah, and a lot of them still exist. You can see a a, a televised interview with Lee Harvey Oswald on YouTube. Uh, but after Jack Ruby kills Oswald. They didn't want another uh, replay on live TV with with, uh, uh, with Jack Ruby getting killed. So he was guarded very, very heavily. And not many people were allowed to see him. Uh, of course, his attorney at the time was Melvin Belli, I believe. Yep. Uh, uh, and uh, one reporter, what's the name? We've been talking about it for, for, for months. Uh, anyway. Anyway. But Marvin Belli, it's interesting to me, I knew, again, me being around these people, Marvin Belli was hired by Maya Lansky to go represent him. Well, somebody, somebody had to pay him or not, because people were, the people were banging down the, the doors of the Dallas Justice oh. to represent them. Oh, yeah. with, uh, you know, you get, you get your name out there and you're made for life. But the point is, they were extremely careful about who visited Jack Ruby. He was allowed visitors, but they had to be on a list. One of them was his lawyer. One of them was uh, this, this reporter saw him once. How did this average American family get the husband and wife, the husband and wife. Today's show is being sponsored by Corleone Fine world. Italian Food Products. This sponsor really uh, means a lot to Corleone Fine Italian has taken the heart and soul of the Godfather and created a line of food products that includes pasta sauce, balsamic vinegar from Modena, Italy, Genko Extra Virgin Olive from Sicily. They created delicious pasta. The son, one of the sons, tomato basil, arrabbiato, and my what favorite, did, why did you go Clemenza's there? meat sauce. They never told you will be amazed. Why they you will think your grandmother made the sauce herself. 
Italian.com. I know. That's Corleone. <laughs> what? Share with us, please. I'll tell you what it was about. Yeah. Was where all the money. He ha- he was holding their money. Those people were holding Costello's money. Jack Ruby knew what he was going to do. The only friends he had were these people. Yeah, but that's that's not the point. The, lo- the law enforcement allowing these people to, well, that weren't part of the defense team, weren't part of the press. How did they get in there? Well, that that we'll never know. And Linda Bay Johnson, I guess. Who knew? I mean, first of all, let's not exclude the re- elected, not elected, but he was what sworn in on the plane after the assassination. And the rumor was part of the assassination team, his backup was the New York Texas Rangers. I mean, the Texas Rangers. Uh, you know, so many, let's not get into conspiracy theories. I mean, oh, no, but so- I'm just saying conversation yeah. that we're on the street. You know, I, yeah, I know. You, you, you hear a lot of them. And, uh, it's, but it's still, it's still, when I heard this, uh, when I was reading this, I was just amazed that they're taking a chance to allow these people in there when the whole world was trying to interview this guy and they, they, they wouldn't let him in. And just these average people went in there. I would, I'd love to be a fly in a wall just to see what they talked about. It's, it's had to be something to, uh, obviously it was for somebody's benefit. Well, I think it was, um, again, uh, not knowing who the, how Linda Main Johnson, who did Linda Main Johnson talk to? Did he talk to, uh, Marcellos, did he talk to uh, who? He talked to somebody that they were all in cahoots. They knew it was going down. He he brought them to the mall. That was well, his route. So on, on on that happy note, shall we uh, try to sell some products? Sure, we'll be right back. And you know, we know where you live. So yeah, we'll be right back. Thank you. We are pleased to announce the publication of a new book series from Gianni Russo and Patrick Piccarelli entitled The Sixth Family. When the alleged daughter of Marilyn Monroe asks for help, Gianni Russo becomes entangled in a web of lies and violence in the search for the late actress's diary. Soon, he is enmeshed in a mystery that involves a presidential candidate. A disgruntled Mafia Copo, a retired NYPD detective, and the past of Mafia boss Frank Costello. Russo must race against the clock to stop a hostile reorganization of the American Mafia while trying to stay one step ahead of a faceless killer. While listening to this book, skillfully read by Gianni himself, the listener will have to determine what is true and what is fiction. Or as Gianni says before this epic story begins, this book is a work of fiction, except for the parts that are true. Look out for the second installment of this exciting new series coming in 2023. The Sixth Family. Book One is available now on Amazon.com. Okay. All right, we're right back. This topic, and and during the break, even Pat and I were talking about, there's so many ifs to this and so many unknowns that we'll probably go to our grave never knowing all the consequences. Well, as we speak, uh, the the, the feds released all the classified documents pertaining to the the assassination, 10,000 pages. 
Uh, they released it about a month ago, and uh, historians have been going over it ever since. So far, nothing of uh, great importance has come out. Nothing's, nothing's redacted. It's the, the forms, the regular paperwork. Somewhere in there has to be uh, something of, of import, something that the American public would be interested in. And I'm just dying to see what that is. But, you know, as you know, and just from the previous reports of what it was, they they never even had the, how many shooters were there. They, they that the one big TV show they did, or that magic bullet that it made three lefts and two rights from Lee Harvey Oswald's gun. <laughs> it's craziness. Well, there's been a lot. You know, technology has improved, obviously, from 55 years ago, 65 years ago, whatever it is now. Uh, you know, times have changed. They the acoustics. Uh, that were were present that day. But you fire a round, particularly from a rifle, in a canyon, basically, you're going to get a lot of echoes and reverberations, and all that's been analyzed. And uh, you know, now the, the 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 prevailing wisdom is, with all the technology we have now, that uh, it was one shooter, three rounds fired, and uh, they've got the evidence to prove it. If it's true or not. Are they still saying that? Yeah. I didn't know. I've looked, at, I, I've looked at the ballistic evidence. You know, during the motorcade, there was one cop on a motorcycle that uh, didn't let go of his key. That's the on-off switch on a, on a radio. He held it d- during the shootings. You could hear the shots. And it sounds like a lot of shots. But if you listen carefully, and of course, I don't have the equipment for it, but after it was analyzed and replayed, numerous times you can tell it was the same three shots the echoes got diminished and diminished and diminished the first shot missed the second shot hit the uh, governor Connolly, and the third shot uh hit the president uh and but the, what you're saying is confirmed that lee harvey oswald pulled the trigger three yeah times. At, at, you know at this point in time there's really no doubt about it even uh, a, a lot of people that believe in conspiracies. I'm not saying it wasn't a conspiracy. I'm not saying that he wasn't goaded on, but I'm 100% sure. And you got to ask yourself too, well, who am I? But just from the research I've done, 100% sure he was the lone shooter. 95% sure he acted on his own. Three months before that, he took a couple of shots to General Edwin Walker with the same rifle, same ballistics, and he missed. Let me ask you a question then. What, what about the theory of Johnny Roselli? Uh, it's just the, the, all the shots came from above. We know that uh, from the uh, tra- the trajectory of the rounds, entrance wounds, exit wounds. You know, when you look at this Zapruder film and you see Kennedy's head fly back when he got shot, everybody said, right. well, that proves he was shot in the front. No, it doesn't. I mean, if, any, if anybody's been around or fired shots into a human body, and I have, uh, if the rifle is high, and so have I. So, so I'm just. Yeah, well, uh, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm really. I think that this is the first time I'm hearing. I'm shocked because I, you and I had conversations privately yeah. about well, Ali and, and I, what I, was, we, I, I knew. And you know, uh, I, he definitely was shooting. Yeah, I was a machine gunner in Vietnam. I was a high, you know, not not from a helicopter. I was on the ground. Uh, when you shoot somebody with a high powered. Uh, rifle, and we use the term high power. It's not necessarily the power of the bullet, it's the length of the barrel. It creates velocity. You shoot somebody from the back in the head, and the head flies back. 
it doesn't go forward. Just like uh, in, in, in the movies, you see somebody hit with a shotgun and he goes flying 40 feet into a wall because of the power of the pellets that hit him. I have never seen that. I've seen people shot with, 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 with shotguns, all kinds of weapons. They fall right to the ground. They don't become airborne. They don't fly back. You know, people don't know. People believe what they see on television, in the movies. And it's the pressure that's built up in the brain from a backward shot. The fluids force the fluids back. And that's why you saw his head go back. I mean, the, there's obvious entrance and exit wounds. You don't have to be uh, 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 a medical examiner to look at this and see where the bullets went in and where the bullets came out. The thing is, was Lee Harvey Oswald involved with anybody? Was, was, and if he wasn't involved in an active conspiracy, was he urged on by somebody? There were so many people in his life, uh, life at the time which could have uh, pushed them. Contacts in New Orleans. There was a guy in uh, Dallas named George uh, uh, Morinshell. He was a, a Russian German who hung around the Oswalds a lot. A very, uh, uh, very shadowy type of figure. And uh, allegedly he pushed uh, Oswald to do this. But once again, Oswald on his own shot at, at uh, Edwin Walker weeks before. He took the same rifle, ordered that went to his name. Only he changed his name. He uses an, uh, uh, an alias of Heidel to get the rifle, but he got sent to his address. Right. Uh, so, so you're 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 now also disputing that Marcellus didn't hire him. I'm not saying that the uh, uh, that the mafia was not involved. I'm not saying anybody wasn't involved. But when you get a 24 year old certified mental patient, which is what Oswald was. He had a lot of mental problems. He was diagnosed numerous times as the head, one of the most powerful mafia figures in the United States. Would you sit down with any shooter and not have people between you, uh, some kind of a cushion, uh, let alone with a 24-year-old nut? They knew who this guy was from New Orleans. He was all over the streets. He was in the papers every day. You know, so, you know, you, you have to you have to think. Uh, you got to think like a cop, I guess, you know, I know, but what I'm saying to you is that there, there were other families involved. Oh yeah. Criminal families, major families, Chicago, I'm, New York, Kansas city. Hello. I'm just trying to think logically. That's all. And I, I know if oh, I have logically, a okay. by killing the American president, I'm not going to go anywhere near a guy that's going to pull the trigger. I'm going to have cushions between me and that person. And, and if it happened at all, I'm saying that's how it happened. Because he was a well-known figure in New Orleans. He was a celebrity. Uh, uh, he, he was a laughing stock, but he was a celebrity. But everybody knew he was crazy. You know, so who, who uh, on, on that level of, uh, of organized crime would get personally involved? I mean, uh, if I was Marcelo, I wouldn't do that. That's not to say he didn't do it. <laughs> I'm just saying I wouldn't if I was him. Makes little sense. He just said, well, I'll talk to the guy. Maybe he had uh, he crossed paths with him before, and as soon as he pulls the trigger, I'll have somebody whack him, which is exactly what happened. But there was a space of three or four days between the assassination and uh, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald getting killed. What's not to say he could have talked a blue streak? All he, all, oh, all what, he, what, what we're saying, what what is known, or I mean, after the you know after he's arrested, they had to set up 
getting Ruby to, to get to him. Yeah, well, that's the way it appears. And I'm not uh, convinced of that either because okay. uh, uh, Jack Ruby was, uh, he wanted support from Chicago. He wanted money. His clubs were sinking. He wanted to borrow money. They wouldn't give it to him. That's not to say they didn't have a decent Who told rate. you this? Oh, good. Years of research, government, government uh, documents. He was so bad. Them all. I'm not saying he didn't have a working relationship with them. No, but he, he was making a lot of money. Well, was money uh, coming out of his clubs, his game. Maybe, maybe the restaurants weren't doing good, but the what was being taxed maybe wasn't doing good. I know think, that from my own operations. So, so let me ask you this: You, you think that they? Uh, the higher echelon of the outfit trusted him that much. Jack Ruby, to yeah. To send he him turned in the money. money. He turned in the money every month. But I'm not saying that they didn't. I'm saying he wanted more money. He wanted, he was hurting in some of his, his places and he wanted more money. And they basically, they, would, they weren't uh, insulting. They just said they weren't going to give it to him at this time. And they didn't. But the question is, would they trust Ruby, who also had a reputation of being, he had a, he had a, had a, a, a head trigger temper. Would they would they trust somebody like that to go in into police headquarters where he had a lot of connections? That's how he got in. Right. To, to, to pull a trigger. But the reason I'm gonna, let me give you a little history on that. What? That you don't know, obviously. The reason he had the police connections over there, he was paying the cops for years oh, to yeah, stay away that. from his gambling stuff. Hey, anybody who owns a owns a club or a restaurant anywhere is paying paying police law. Well, that's why he had the connections. I'm I'm, I'm glad we got into this. This is really yeah. interesting. Well, I'm thinking you're thinking from, like a cop, but I'm thinking like a, a yeah, well, information I'm just, that I have. I'm just looking at it. Of course, I wasn't there, and I'm just looking. And you have connections that I never had and never will. I'm looking at it from a research point of view and to, you know, I, I, I volunteered to, to, to create a course in the, the uh, JFK assassination, which I taught for six months and on a college level. And you better be prepared because you got these uh, students who went to see uh, uh, JFK, the movie, and right away they think, you know, everything is oh, true. I mean, well, that, that's, it's a movie. You, know, you, know, you and I know that, it, you know, it, it's a movie, but you have to dispel theories logically. You've got to show proof but again if, you're if, also talking to students that have no no idea what organized crime has the course. capability of doing and how influenced they could be but i yeah. mean jack ruby operated for years with slot machines full casinos and, yeah. and prostitution yeah yeah we know that. he had every cop in the world on his payroll in dallas yeah i'm just saying if uh, if if somebody was to hold a gun to my head pardon the pun since considering what we're talking about <laughs> of why Jack Ruby killed uh, Lee Harvey Oswald? I I think he was having a uh, he was extremely upset. He worshipped JFK. I mean, he had pictures of him all over his clubs. I know he breakdowns. He's speaking crying when he was talking about it. He could have easily got just said, "I'm going to kill this son of a bitch, and I'm going to be a hero." That's what he thought. Instead of getting the death penalty and dying before they they had a chance to execute him. Uh, so there's you know two logical theories here. The point is, will we ever know? For sure. Well, I know I, for I, sure. I, One guy that's still alive. Yeah. That knows for sure. And he's 90-some years of age. Mm -hmm. And he knows how that whole thing went down and why yeah. it went down. Ask him if he wants to write a book. No. <laughs> I'll be kidding, man. He, he'll, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a situation that, you know, it's interesting. Because here we are, like you're saying, it, he, how many decades later, 
we're still trying to figure it out. But I, I can't believe. Well, I, I somebody totally disagreed with you as they did the analyzation of that bullet. You're saying that he was able, he was the only one shooting three oh, people. So three I, I, look, there's no doubt in my mind. Looking, I, I, I I'm not saying in your mind. No, no, no. I'm talking yeah. about, and that we're not saying in your mind. We're saying when they analyzed this last. But about two years ago, when they had that whole thing with that bullet, how it had to make lefts and rights and everything else, that it came from Lee Harvey Oswald's gun. If you look, if you look at the seating arrangement from above, and it's just go on the internet. From above, they are not. They that that it didn't have to make any lefts or rights. The, the bullet went in a straight line from Kennedy into Governor Connolly. A straight line, no lefts, no rights. The question, the question is, who, I, I don't have any doubt about that. The ballistics proved that it was a straight line. Of course, if you go to the movies and you see JFK and you talk about the bolt that turned left, the bolt oh, that no, turned. Oh no, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the the experts that traced it and said it couldn't be just him. This is a shooter. Well, that's not what I feel, and that's not what I've read. But everybody. Oh, no, no, read. again, we're not. I'm not putting you into it personally. I'm just saying. I'm playing devil's advocate. You know, I, now I, they I, spent a lot of money on these shows. They had people analyze it, and they all said it couldn't be just his bullet. You're saying it can be. I mean, you're saying it's your opinion that it could be. It's my opinion based on research. Of course, uh, this is the most intriguing mystery of modern history. Oh, yeah. And people are going to be talking about this like like you and I talking like gentlemen with different opinions. Right, yeah, right. Whatever. Now, even when these uh, these ten thousand uh, pages are analyzed, which will be shortly, I imagine take about a month or two. There's a lot of people reading them uh, from the same organizations, news organizations. They're going to come out now with the definitive story, and there's still going to be people who will say, "Well, no, those documents were were were, were doctored. They were forged." They were they were changed. You're never going to satisfy anybody. So well, they had but, enough time. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, they did. Yes, fifty nine years. So I mean, so you can always expect to have a, a, a difference of opinion. So I only go by documents that I read, official documents from Emmys and people that uh, are ballistics experts that were testing these rifles for years. Right. Uh, you know, and other people will do get the same gun under the same circumstances and tell you something else. You know, well, so we see it, that just in cross-examination and murder trials, you know, they got one guy, especially the other guys, they bring a defense specialist and he says something different. I mean, you're you right. Know, I'm just saying you, that only because of the players that I was familiar with at the time it was happening, they were all involved. Santo Traficante, what does he have to do with anybody? But he was involved. Did you know that they had a mock trial in London 10 years after the assassination? Racehorse Haynes uh, was a, a famous a criminal attorney. He represented uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, supposedly. This was a mock trial. And uh, the hell is his name that wrote? The, 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 guy, the, uh, the prosecutor that, uh, that prosecuted Charles Manson. I don't know uh, what that is. Famous case. Anyway. He represented the state, and they had this in London. It was uh, it was televised with a jury, and uh, it went on for a couple of weeks. And the jury decided, based on the evidence, uh, of course, there were two opposing sides here. It was uh, Racehorse Haynes? I forget what his real first name was, but 
very flamboyant criminal attorney. Uh, based, based on what was available at the time, the jury found that Oswald uh, was the shooter. They couldn't say that he wasn't involved in a conspiracy because we'll never know that. He could have talked to anybody that we, we don't know about. Right. But the actual shooters, the evidence clearly pointed out one shooter, one rifle, three bullets. But did somebody put him up to it? It's, you know, that that part. No, I'm just saying, that, no, you're going back to the, the, the one shooter, three bullets theory. I'm going that there were more shooters because more people, people that I know had shooters there. Had shooters there. Well, like I say, we, we'll never know. I know, but I'm just saying, but I know that they were there. Yeah. Did they shoot? Did they? Did their bullet kill them? I don't know that. What I'm saying is that Johnny Roselli was definitely in that storm sewer coming up. Johnny Roselli was trained, trained by the CIA, along with Santo Traficante trying to kill Fidel Castro. Yeah, well, that's that's verifiable history. Well, I'm saying. So that was, these were the same guys that they switched to the assassin of this guy. These they, they were trying to get the casinos back, and we were trying to do it for two years. Unaware. I mean, perfectly valid arguments. And once no. again, the only thing we have to go on is what's out there and, and what's available. Come back to the original subject. We could probably learn an awful lot about something if we can uh, find out exactly what was said with these with this husband and wife team that went to went to uh, interview Jack Ruby in, in prison. You know, I mean, he, he it's uh, to have law enforcement al allow them to do that to me is historic. I know. I mean, it's, and, and why, why hasn't that, that's something, why hasn't it come out sooner? I, I don't know. And any, anybody that's trying to do it on, on, on the sly, you got the eyes of the world watching this guy. Oh my God. Yeah. So, I mean, there's gotta be a really valid reason for it. Uh, and I guess we'll never know unless one one family member that's probably 106 years old by this time <laughs> will come up. No, come I'm up sure. I'm sure they told nobody. No, but I mean, it's, I mean, I'm intrigued by, you know, I don't want to say cops and robbers. I want to say organized hits and things like that was always a thing that intrigued me. But um, I just happen to be around the players during that time, as you know, just by what you wrote in our book. Yeah. During the, you know, running all over the place with getting union votes and culinary union, Teamsters votes and international insurance. That was all to get him arrested. I mean, arrest, elected for one reason, to get the casinos back. And that was a justifiable reason. And that's why Costello and Maya Lansky said they'll do it. And that was for Joe, you know, Joe Kennedy to get my son erect, erect, elected. He's and his first duty would be, you know. Yeah, you know, some somebody once asked me, why is this such a hot button topic? You know, other presidents have been assassinated. Uh, Lincoln being the first one and people uh, talk about it, but they, they don't go so in-depth. as because That was a definite conspiracy. Group. Numerous people hung over that one. But... I, I think I, I, I had a simple answer. The world cannot wrap their heads around a 24-year-old high school dropout individual with psychological problems can get to a point and, act and, and, and kill the president of the United States. When you think of those terms in modern times, 
you think of vast conspiracies with the military involved or spy agencies. What happens if it was just one guy who was working in that building who went up there with a rifle and shot him? And it's very hard to comprehend. To say, no, but not only happened. that, was it, wasn't he in the Marines and trained by the Marines? He did a full was, tour. Yeah, but it was so, like being in the army. You have, you have to qualify with a rifle. I mean, no, but I mean, so if he was, if he was mentally deranged, nobody in the army picked that up. Let me tell you something. I worked with more psychos in the army than you can shake a stick at. No, they just take you. Oh, that was during wartime. This was not. Well, this was peace no, time. No, I mean, he wasn't. He, he wasn't a, a, a drooling, axe-carrying psychopath. He had serious mental problems. Most of it was depression. He wanted to make a name for himself. He tried to do that when he went to Russia. He felt like he was going to get greeted with open arms. An American who defected usually works the other way around. But they treated him just like everybody else, gave him a factory job, and he got pissed, stayed there two years, and came home. He wanted... But, but, but wasn't he... I thought he was mustered out over there by no, choice. No, he, no, he was out of the military for quite a while. He, he went to Mexico and tried to get a visa to, to, to go to Russia, and they wouldn't listen to him. Finally, he was able to work it out. He went there, and he expected a hero's welcome, and he didn't get it. And he wound up marrying uh, Marina and uh, came back to the States and was looking for something. He had nothing. They were living in squalor. And uh, what's the best way to get famous? Well, kill kill an Air Force general. He tried that and screwed that up. And the president's next. But uh, now he was prime, as, as you're saying, for somebody to point him in the right direction and say, you know, this is what you have to do when we will help you. We'll do this for you. We'll do that for you. We'll get you out of the country. We'll do this. Yeah, that perfect guy. But I'd be real careful talking to him and who I sent to talk to him. But, uh, I mean, there's a fascinating story, which will go unanswered on this podcast. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. Hello. <laughs> I'm for, we could be on for years. Well, there's we've been so many... on a little, little over 50 minutes, and we have done a show. Yeah. Well, again, again, interesting topic. That yeah. Haywire. And we want to thank all of you who are listening. I hope you enjoyed this one. I did. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me, you know, for an 80-year-old man, though, I'm happy to say. Well, I, you know, it's always nice when two friends and two rational people can talk about opposing points of view. Uh, because yeah, I mean that's what that's what's wrong with this country at this point. Well, this is like you know I I, I will never uh, argue politics with anybody. I never talk about religion. Nobody nobody knows how I vote. Right. Nobody literally. Why oh, don't know that? I don't know. And but you know uh, I you're, you're a very good friend, and you know we, we we can talk about this and perhaps enlighten people to form an opinion based on what we say and to do your own research. And you know, oh, yeah, best way to do it. Anyway, another right, show to an end. What's this, number 210 or something? Yeah, ridiculous. My God. Well, anyway, but we want to thank all of you because we wouldn't be doing 10, not alone 210, <laughs> in shows. And keep the cards and letters coming in. I think next week we'll have a a mailbag show. I know that coming up. And um, support us. because we. By the way, I don't, Johnny, I don't know if you're aware of this, but we have a book out now. A major book. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, we got to push that a little. Yeah. The sixth family. It's out a few weeks already. We're getting five star reviews. Go on Amazon. It's called The Sixth Family. And uh, Pat did his genius work again. And we're getting 
tr- tremendous reviews. Well, and, without you in this project, I couldn't have done it. Well, without you in this project, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, what, I'm, I'm very proud of the book as you are. And oh uh, God, I hope has a chance to read it. Good, bad, or different. Read it. Let us know what you think. Please. Thank you. God bless you all. And we'll talk to you next week. Good night, John. Good night. that but i'll be back thank you for tuning in to the hollywood godfather podcast you can contact gianni russo or patrick picciarelli with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com which is where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter you can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038 remember to follow us on instagram at hollywood godfather and on facebook as well as leave us a review on apple podcasts we'd like to know what you like about what we're doing what you'd like to hear in the future and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast most importantly hit the subscribe button We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your messages. Good night. My kids still can't believe I sat with a saint. My life's like scenes out of a movie. I'm the Hollywood godfather, truly. I got stories with them all. You know, celebrities, world leaders, icons. Who knows what's next for me? I'll never get too old to have a little fun. Come on, I'm Gianni Russo. A genuine one of a kind. What a ride it's been, this life of mine. And I ain't done yet. I'll be back until next time. And that was that.